In September 2018, the Royal College of Surgeons of England published new guidance to support surgeons in caring for patients at the end of life. The guidance gives clear advice about how to define and recognise the end of life and offers solutions for practising surgeons to support them in planning for care at the end of life. It also considers communication and decision-making processes between professionals and with families and with the wider healthcare team. I'm Murray Anderson-Wallace and in these podcasts I'll be exploring some of these issues with the architects of the new guidance and considering some of the ethical dilemmas associated with end-of-life care faced by surgeons in their daily work. In this episode, I'll look at what can be done practically to support patients and their families in these complex decisions, and crucially, to explore who is best placed and when to have these life and death conversations. Ms Sue Hill is a consultant vascular surgeon and a vice president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. So quite rightly, there is a reluctance to predict death because anyone with any experience realises that it's a very difficult thing to do. And even in an acutely unwell patient, other than suggesting to relatives and the patient themselves that death is approaching, actually being specific about it is really difficult. But I think it behoves us not to avoid the issue. I asked Professor Kerry Thomas, founder and national clinical lead for the GSF Centre for End-of-Life Care, how she defines the end of life. Oh, well, there are two definitions of end of life. There's the one that is the GMC and NHS England, which is final year of life. So that's the policy definition, and that's what we work to. On the wards and in practice, people use the term end of life care to mean care of the dying, someone in the final days. We don't know when that is. We might be not too bad at defining when someone might be in the last days of life, but we struggle with final year of life. Many doctors think, well, this is going to lead me to have a difficult discussion and I might say the wrong words. And we say, actually, no, what you can do, please, is recognise that you think someone might be in that last year of life, give them some kind of leaflet or information for them to go back and discuss with their family and then trigger the GP and maybe other people in the community to have that discussion. I personally don't think it's always at all going to be the surgeon's role to, to have an advanced care planning discussion. It isn't all about prognostication, it isn't all about disease, and it isn't all about treatment options. It's about where am I in my life and what's important to me. Dame Claire Marks is past president of the Royal College of Surgeons and a consultant orthopaedic surgeon. Most doctors don't see a lot of death. Nurses see death. Carers see death. General practitioners almost never see death. And I'm not sure that a little more exposure to death and the different ways people do die wouldn't be a good thing. Sue Hill. Even among physicians, there is a reluctance to actually address the issue of death with a person who may not have considered it themselves. Dame Claire Marks. This willingness to have the conversation as opposed to the duty to have a conversation is something that we really got to work on. And that requires a mindset shift. It's the same as the conversations we have about ordinary informed consent. We need to realise that part of the healing of being a doctor is the, the information we give, the relationship we create with the patient and its family and with those of the team around. And if people feel that you're holding back because there's something you don't want to do in all this, it becomes quite obvious at some stage. The problem there is that sometimes we bring with us biases, conscious and unconscious biases, and therefore knowing your own views about things and being honest 
about those views with yourself. I think that's a really important exercise for professionals as they think about how they can help people as they get towards the end of their lives. Bearing in mind that an estimated 30% of hospital inpatients are within the last year of their life, I asked Kerry Thomas when the conversation about care preferences should happen and how these discussions can be best supported. The general thinking is that it should be as early as possible. The the realistic thinking is that if we got to identify this 30% of people, then could that be a trigger and an opportunity? And we think it can be. And it isn't a doctor-led discussion. It's creating a space so people go back and think and reflect. In the advanced care planning leaflet that we suggest called Thinking Ahead, we ask the questions, what's important to you? What do you want to happen? What do you not want to happen? And who will speak for you? Well, those four questions could be asked at any stage. In America and other places where they're a bit more legally minded, they very much go on that one, who will speak for you. To have a named spokesperson, not just the lasting power of attorney, but a proxy spokesperson, is thought to be really valuable. And actually, it's a really good way in in hospitals because it's not loaded. If something happened to you and you couldn't speak for yourself, who would you like to speak for you? It's an easy, gentle way in. People will often say, well, not my wife, I don't want to bother her, but maybe my son or neighbor or friend. And then that can turn into a lasting power of attorney, but that person can have that conversation. And then you say, well, would you like to bring them in and we can have that discussion? We are better than many countries in this, I have to say, with our wonderful NHS. Other countries have a very high rate of medicalization of dying. We have a 50% hospital death rate, whereas in places like Japan and China, they have 95%. So they can't believe how we have managed to decrease our hospital death rate and enable more people to die where they choose. You mentioned advanced statements, advanced care plans, ADRT, lasting power of attorney and so forth. Can you just briefly outline what is the difference between these things? The three elements. There's the advanced statement of wishes, which is not a legally binding document, but it's a statement of what is important to a person. And that's what we call the thinking ahead document. And anyone can jot that down or even video it or record it. Children living with a life-threatening condition often write these kind of things. It's a statement about wishes and preferences. ADRT, Advanced Decision to Refuse Treatment, is a very specific refusal of, say, further chemotherapy, peg tube surgery. It's usually done in consultation with a specialist or appropriate person. Along with what you don't want comes in resuscitation, which is do not attempt resuscitation. We're moving forward with our thinking about that because actually asking about resuscitation can be more tricky than even an advanced care planning discussion. Sometimes the way you phrase it, people will say, oh, well, I'll have that. Don't give up on me, you know, whereas actually the reality is most doctors know in hospital is resuscitation, especially failed resuscitation, can be awful and very undignified. And the third thing is who will speak for you, because there are legal things like lasting power of attorney, which costs a little bit, but people often get the house in order and do that. But actually to say a nominated spokesperson. So think yourself, talk with your family. Often, of course, families and carers say, oh, you're much fitter than that. No, you don't want to talk about it. I did that myself with my own father. And then jot something down, record, and you can do all that long before you get to talk to a healthcare person. I'm getting a sense there that you're seeing this as being, first and foremost, these are conversations that need to be generated from yourself. Do you think that as a society we're getting better or worse at addressing this issue of mortality? It's doctors that find this most difficult because a doctor facing a 
patient is trying to think, well, what's the best treatment option so that someone facing chemotherapy isn't spending every last minute of their life vomiting up and that kind of thing. But most other people don't have that extra burden that doctors do in terms of um, defining therapy. Just going back to advanced care planning, there's a lovely new international definition, which is an international consensus definition of advanced care planning. So advanced care planning is a process that supports adults at any age or stage of health in understanding and sharing their personal values, life goals and preferences regarding future medical care. The goal of advanced care planning is to help ensure that people receive medical care that's consistent with their values, goals and preferences during serious and chronic illness. So we have shifted in our thinking. When advanced care planning started, it was quite a transactional medical model about how long do we think someone has and that kind of thing. We've shifted now to a more personal model. Someone can consider this and think what's important to them quality of life or, or whatever or my family or walking the dog or going to the pub on a Friday night and those things are important to that person and sometimes they'll put up with a bit of pain or whatever it is to be able to maintain the things that are important to them. One young doctor said to me, tell them surgeons should not walk past the bed of a patient anymore because they're under the care of the palliative care team. Apparently, it's relatively common that because someone is referred to a palliative care team, they just say, there's no more we can do for you. This surgeon is wanting to see what they can actually do. And they're thinking, I can't do anything more for this person. But underneath that person who you can or can't fix is a person who you can care for, even on a human level. And even just a relatively small gesture of acknowledgement reaffirms them. Katerina Sarafidou is the Head of Standards at the Royal College of Surgeons. I asked her to outline the legal and organisational considerations that the guidance aims to clarify. Your position as a surgeon is very different to your position as a patient. As a patient, you have the absolute legal and ethical right to refuse treatment, to refuse an aspect of treatment, to make any decisions that can be detrimental to your health and even fatal. It has been established in law ever since 1994 and it has done so repeatedly. And this is something is to be respected. That's not always a comfortable position for the doctor to be faced with. It comes with ethical dilemmas and not just the personal ethical dilemmas, but also the external pressures that may be put on the service, on the professionals, uh, that there is a policy that uh, forces them to resuscitate, that forces them to prolong life in ways that can be felt by them as quite cruel. So hospitals have to be supported to have the right policies so that teams can be supported to do the right thing. I asked Claire Marks if there are circumstances when a surgeon can refuse to operate when a patient wants a surgical intervention. There is a right to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this. But then you've got to actually have the strategy of saying, I'll see if I can find someone else who will, but that may not be easy. So it's not a question of telling someone that they should not make that decision. But I do think that as a surgeon, you should have the right to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. Do you think that those situations are more common now than they used to be? Sometimes patients and their families have acquired knowledge through the social media and through all the knowledge that we know is out there. And there is quite often a slightly unrealistic expectation of what a clinician can do. And for that reason, the demand on the professional 
maybe higher than it might otherwise have been. That's not to say that doctor knows best, but I think it is a time when sometimes you have to be able to say, no, that's not within my gift or capability, and so I'm not going to do that. How do we enable people to give of their best, do of their best, whilst being realistic about what it is they can do? We live in a world that expects people to be able to use technology and various other things to produce certainty. How do we enable the people to understand that they can't have certainty when we're dealing with something as uncertain as the moment of death? As the Royal College of Surgeons guidance makes clear, the way that we provide care at the end of life is a litmus test for our society. We must never deny the possibility of life-conserving treatments to people of any age, and yet for some the betubed, pyjamaed, highly medicalised inpatient existence is a diminished life. Life for many is measured less in quantity of time, but more in quality of life lived, and it is our responsibility to ensure that this is as good as possible. The new guidance from the Royal College of Surgeons adopts a carefully considered position in relation to the many very real challenges faced by practising surgeons when caring for patients at the end of life. It provides practical advice and clear frameworks to support discussions amongst the wider healthcare team and considers how services need to be organised to improve the quality of care at this critical time. Perhaps most importantly, the guidance recognises that death is inevitable for all of us, and there comes a time when extending life through surgery or other therapeutic intervention is not in the patient's best interests. The steps that surgeons can take to ensure that patients nearing the end of life experience a dignified death lie at the heart of the matter. Full information about the Royal College of Surgeons' guidance on caring for patients at the end of life can be found at the Royal College of Surgeons' website. These podcasts were an Anderson Wallace production for the Royal College of Surgeons. The contributors were Dame Claire Marks, Miss Sue Hill, Professor Kerry Thomas and Katerina Sarafidou. Music by Issa Suarez. The production was written and produced by Marie Anderson Wallace and Roland Denning.